Hello, true crime friends. Welcome back to another episode of True Crime in Academia. I am your host, Mary DePippi. First of all, I hope you are all having a wonderful week so far. If not, that really sucks, and I hope it gets better for you. Today, I have a really special guest with me. He is a writer and producer who worked very closely with the late author Michelle McNamara and actually helped finish her novel, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, the story of the Golden State Killer, with me, Paul Haynes. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, true crime friends. You've heard me talk about my amazing friend Mandy before. She makes the best crochet, cre-cut, and custom home decor for reasonable prices. If you're looking for a one-of-a-kind gift or some new decor to add some new life into your home, look no further. Mandy has got you. I have quite a few items from her, ranging from a crocheted headband to Halloween decor items to my amazing and adorable Coraline ornament. Um, if you guys haven't noticed, I'm like obsessed with Coraline and I just love how Mandy makes it. She's also made me a Coraline doll that sits next to all of my true crime books. To order, just slide in her DMs on Facebook and Instagram at Mandy Made It. That's M-A-N-D-E-E, Made It, on Facebook and Instagram. Once again, go to Mandy Made It on Facebook and Instagram. Send her a DM and order today. Paul, thank you so much for being here with me. Oh, yeah. So my first question for you, how did you become a writer and producer? What was your background before all of this? Oh, so uh, I was uh, I was 28 and moved back home with my parents and I had no job uh, and I was miserable. Um, and, uh, you know, I'd grown up uh, with with a great deal of trauma and dysfunction. And so moving back into that house was not was not the ideal move for me. But at that point, I didn't have any other options. And uh, so I was extraordinarily depressed and uh, my outlook was pretty bleak. And I think I walled myself off with, uh, you know, this growing obsession uh, with um, identifying the East Area Rapist original Night Stalker. Uh, and I began um, doing it full time, you know, in 2011. And five or six months in, I connected with Michelle. And Michelle was doing very similar work and, in fact, had um, discovered some of the same people, people that had no prior connection that we knew of to the mm -hmm. case. Uh, so a rapport uh, was built from there between us. And uh, over the next two, two years, we, we worked together and um, she wrote a piece for Los Angeles Magazine and sold uh, on the strength of that piece, uh, the, the book to HarperCollins and um, invited me to work with her. So uh, what was a very impractical um, pastime for me became an escape hatch from Florida. Uh, and I moved here uh, to LA uh, eight years ago. 
Wow. Now, how exactly did the two of you, did you and Michelle meet? Like, how did you guys get connected and come together for this? Yeah. So I, I was, uh, I was an admirer of her writing and her true crime diary blog. And uh, when she wrote about this case, it seemed like it was long overdue. It seemed like the ideal case for Michelle. And I had posted a link to the article on a, on a, on a, a, a message board that it was um, uh, run by A&E. Uh, and um, she had been lurking on the board and sent me a private message. And that's how we connected. Oh, wow. So, and, you know, I guess, you know, how the kids say it, like she slid into your DMs basically and was like, come work with me. That's really, really awesome. Now, what would an average day working on I'll Be Gone in the Dark look for you both? Like what were- There really was no average day. I mean, we did our own thing essentially. Um, I mean, there there are days that passed where um, maybe there were, there would be no communication between us and uh, I would find something or she would find something that was uh, worth, um, you know, sharing and, and digging deeper into, but there was no real structure to it mm-hmm. until, after, until after her passing. And obviously um, mm-hmm. finishing the book was uh, an immense responsibility that I shared with, uh, with Billy Jensen and, and her, um, her husband, Patton and uh, Harper Collins. Yeah, I mean, I can't even imagine what that process must have been like to have to like, because you guys worked together on this was this was a passion project, the two of you shared. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, to have this really tragic thing of her passing her sudden passing. I can't imagine the amount of or just the weight of knowing like I need to get this done and the responsibility. But I guess, you know, with your friendship and everything that probably helped a little bit, I'm sure. Yeah. Now, what were your first impressions of this case? The what who, the moniker is the Golden State Killer, which Michelle McNamara really hit home for everyone before, as you had mentioned, he was called the original Night Stalker. But yeah, what were your impressions of this case when you first heard about it? My impressions of the case. Um, I mean, I first learned about it. I think it was uh, around 2006 um, from an MSNBC special. And uh, this case, had, I was unfamiliar with it. Um, so it was under my radar, uh, but it was under the radar of, of most people uh, because the um, presence of a serial offender was not detected, at least in the Southern California crimes until um, mid to late 90s. And it was first uh, uh, disclosed in um, the early 2000s. And then a year after it was uh, um, revealed that there there was a serial killer operating in the um, early 80s in Southern California. A year later, the connection, the link had been made to the um, the East Area Rapist in Northern California. Thus, the moniker East Area Rapist slash original Night, Night Stalker, Eron's. Uh, and I think it's one of the reasons the case uh, remained off the public's radar is it just didn't have a good hook. And Michelle recognized that and, um, you know, emailed uh, a few dozen of her closest friends in the entertainment community, people with creative minds, uh, asking for submissions, um, you know, for a new uh, new moniker. And uh, Golden State Killer was the winner. I don't even remember who came up with that. I mean, it is a great moniker because, I mean, obviously, for a lot of people who know true crime, they know Night Stalker Richard Ramirez. Right. And it's hard to get that, I think, out of your mind. And even as I was reading this book, I had to keep reminding myself like, oh, the original Night Stalker. It is not Richard Ramirez. Like, that's right. It's a whole other thing. And and that that uh, that name, I think, was coined by Larry Poole, uh, who was the public face of a case in the early 2000s. Uh, He worked for the Orange County Sheriff's Department. And uh, it was uh, it was um, uh, uh, 
an off the cuff remark. He was like, this is the original Night Stalker because he was operating uh, in the same place around the same time as Ramirez. So he was simply drawing a parallel. Mm -hmm. um, uh, little did he know that that name would, uh, would, uh, would stick. Yeah, and I kind of feel like it's a shame that it stuck for so long. Just because, again, I feel like most true crime enthusiasts, when they hear Night Stalker, they go, OK, Richard Ramirez, and they think they don't need to look into anything more when really this is a completely separate case. Mm. And so much more was happening than just what Richard Ramirez did. Yeah, that's really sad. Like, I feel like I don't know. I feel like in some ways like that could have made people care about the case a little bit more, I think, right. by having a separate, more strong moniker. But thankfully someone was able you know michelle was able to really drive that home and you know right. that you guys were able to find someone to do that now the book takes us through a bunch of different victims most of them remain anonymous which i can completely understand but when the golden state killer's identity was actually first found out or i'm sorry before it was found out what theory did you think for yourself was the most plausible? Like, was there a specific well, there, there, on there subtype no that you thought about? Yeah, I mean, there were no, there, there were no real theories that, that I, and I think it's uh, it's unwise to marry yourself to a theory, um, with, with, you know, with a case like this, because then you, uh, you, you, um, you have confirmation bias and uh, you have blinders in, in terms of where, where you're looking and where you're, um, you know, what, what information you're, you're uh, um, incorporating and, and discarding. So, uh, yeah, I, I didn't have any, uh, like fixed theory that I was, um, that I favored. Mm -hmm. Now, can we just talk about the title for a second? Because oh, I no. had been trying to, like, when I first started the book, I was thinking to myself, Hmm, what is it just like, I'll be gone in the dark because like he committed crimes at night, but then it became something so much more sinister that when I read it, it gave me chills. Yeah that this was something he said to a victim, I'll be gone in the dark and you'll that be dead. That it's multiple victims. He, well, there are variations on it. He said, I'll be gone in the dark. I'll be gone in the night. Uh, I'll, I'll be gone in the fog. Um, and uh, and I, you know, he was trying to be scary. I think that's why, you know, I think he was very aware of uh, how frightening um, a presence he was in the community. He was aware of the degree to which people were aware of him. Um, and uh, that that was all uh, part of his power that, that fed his... Uh, his sense of, um, you know, control. I mean, he definitely succeeded. I mean, again, having read the book, I already knew that he was locked away, but I was just like, oh my God, this is the most chilling thing. I can't even imagine what any of his victims must have felt were like. You, were you aware of the case before uh, the arrest? I was not aware of the case before the arrest. I yeah. knew about the case when I heard about the arrest and I was like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> Because normally so I'm, I'm always interested in like uh, people's uh, reconciliation of um, their impressions of the offender before he's identified, and then mm. the, the actual manifestation of the offender in Joseph D'Angelo. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I just uh, I was never really able to reconcile the two until I think he stood and spoke after his um, on the day of his conviction, uh, and that was when I first saw, you know, the the specter, you know, the sort of composite person that I'd formed in my mind in. Indian. Mm -hmm. And I that speaks to, I just think, I, I think that speaks to the duality of offenders like this, you know, they present, yeah. uh, you know, this mask of sanity, um, mm -hmm. while, while, you know, covertly, um, they have very dark impulses. Yeah, I mean, and in the, the doc only them, for the most yeah, part. 
Yeah, I was gonna say, even in the documentary, like when they were talking to his family members, they were like, we literally had no clue. And I think that just makes him and a lot of other serial killers so scary is that they, they can be these two completely opposite, yeah. different people that coincide within the same body. That's the fascination for me. That's mm-hmm. always been the hook for me. Um, you know, when I first started reading about serial killers and, and true crime, I would look at neighbors and people that I knew and people that were in my periphery (laughs) if there was a serial killer among them, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely. Now, obviously we mentioned that Michelle had passed before this novel was completed. If she was alive and had finished her novel, how similar or how different do you think it would have been from the published version? Um, You know, I can't say, I think it maybe would have been fuller. Um, It would have been longer. Uh, and I think the, 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 the weaving you see of her, of her personal narrative with the case, um, would be, uh, more developed, uh, you know, when, when she died, I would estimate that maybe only 60% of the book was finished. Um, and, uh, so it was just a matter of, uh, patching, you know, the, the holes that were left, Mm -hmm. you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. It is a compromised work. Yeah. Sadly. Yeah, sadly, truly. And I mean, there was so much digging she did into this case. I mean, she was able to get records that really no one had even really seen before. She spoke to victims. Uh, just, I mean, she went so out of her way to really do this. And you can really see in her personal narratives when she's talking and everything, how invested she is Hmm. and you feel how invested she is in this case and wanting to just know who did it and I just I can't help but wonder like do you think she would have been surprised by the identity of the actual killer yes and no there are aspects of D'Angelo that weren't surprising I think she would have been surprised by his age um, she would have been surprised by his uh, Italian heritage, mm-hmm. um, because the the information that that we had um, that had been uh, you know ex- extrapolated from his genetic information was that the offender would likely be someone of um, Northwestern European ancestry, uh, and and not likely uh, Italian. Um, so, uh, you know, there were some results, there was one instance where, uh, and this is when we were working with Colin Fitzpatrick, um, and, you know, we were using a, a um, less powerful set of resources than like GEDmatch proved to be. Uh, and uh, we had a big list of surnames that would come back, you know, as potentially being connected to the offender. Uh, one, there was, I remember there was a set where uh, it, it showed an- Azorian, I think I'm saying that correctly, uh, from the Azores. Uh, which is like mm-hmm. an island off the co- coast of Portugal, uh, ancestry in the, for, uh, originating in the Azores. And uh, two of the surnames I remember being um, uh, De Silva and Angelo. Now that, that may be, that may be mm-hmm. the closest we got in terms of um, uh, gene- gene- genealogically, uh, but that may also have been a coincidence. Certainly when you look at as many names as, as we looked at and as many um, information sources, uh, you begin to see more and more coincidences and at first it's exciting and then you realize it's a coincidence and that happens again and again and uh, you grow desensitized um, to uh, new 
you know, what, what appear to be revelations when in fact, they're just coincidences. Right. And I mean, just even in general, for people who don't know a lot about forensics, because I feel like I remember when I first learned that this was how they figured out who the Golden State Killer was and things like that. And they used, or I think at the time, someone was saying they used Ancestry.com or whatever, mm-hmm. even though that wasn't the full truth. Um, to even think, though, how much the way we handle crime mm-hmm. and the way we handle unexplained death, how much that has changed and how much still needs to change. And just the fact that like you guys went in with it and were like, we're going to try and figure this out, I think is just so admirable because truly, I mean, it's one of those things where you read the case and you go, okay, well, there was DNA here, DNA here, but DNA testing wasn't a huge thing back then. Well, you needed a suspect to uh, compare it against. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, the beautiful thing about forensic genealogy is you no longer need a suspect. Uh, you just need a you know viable DNA sample and a database, um, and I, I I like to liken it, I like to liken it to a like a magical planchette mm-hmm. that that just guides you directly to the offender's identity, and uh, it kind of makes detective work less interesting, um, and it mm-hmm. certainly renders like the citizen detective, which by the way, the title I've never assigned myself, um, <laughs> obsolete or redundant mm-hmm. in a way, um, and uh, yeah, it, it is very exciting because there 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 are thousands of cold cases that are probably um, viable for solving via forensic genealogy, uh, cases dating back half a century. You know, I think the oldest case that's been resolved thus far was like mid to late 1950s. There, there have been a few from 1950s mm-hmm. that have been solved with uh, forensic genealogy or investigative genetic. Fr- There's it, I think the community has yet to settle on a, on a name for this, uh, <laughs> you know, this really, I like forensic genealogy because it rolls off the tongue. Yeah, uh, and that's also I think Colleen Fitzpatrick is the is the architect of forensic genealogy, and she literally wrote the book on it called Forensic Genealogy. So I like forensic genealogy. I, I hope that yeah. that um, it's kind of like um, you know in the early like uh, uh, home video wars, how are there like multiple competing formats, and then there was like HD, DVD, and Blu-ray. Um, and I hope in this instance, like investigative genetic genealogy, I don't like saying that. Yeah, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm really I'm, I'm in the forensic genealogy's corner in terms. Yeah. Of- anyway, back to the book and Michelle, um, the other thing that this book really highlights is how even still today, police, there's no real way for police departments to communicate and draw conclusions about right. the same cases. Yeah, I, I mean, that, that was a problem for a long time. I think that it's, uh, it's resolving. Um, I think there's more mm-hmm. communication between jurisdictions. I mean, there, ego is still a factor um, yeah. oftentimes, but there are, um, you know, uh, places where databases that are, you know, national or, you know, state databases where information is consolidated. So, you know, in the, in, in the olden times, um, you know, investigators would have to go like visually compare fingerprints. And that's mm-hmm. time prohibitive, prohibitive process. And, and now it's as simple as just like, you know, well, I don't think it's quite that simple. You know, certainly there are, there are um, variables to consider, but, you know, putting the fingerprint into a database and it just runs it against, you know, existing fingerprints looking for matches. And, uh, you know, so it's like, it's a matter, match in a matter of seconds or minutes versus weeks or months of comparing fingerprints. Yeah. And I just wish there was like a database where 
if any police department came across a certain case and found that it was like a case like this, because obviously, I mean, robbery is bad. Obviously, I'm not trying to grade yeah. crimes here, but obviously rape and murder. On the scale, are really yeah. Up, yeah, on the right. scale, rape and murder are up there. So yeah, I, I, uh, rape, rape plus murder, sexually motivated murder is, is 10. Yes. On the on the scale of whereas shoplifting might be like a two or three. Exactly. Like, and like I said, it's one of those things where you would hope that there could or would be a database where they could, if they stumble upon these crimes, right. immediately go somewhere. And if anyone can see them, you know, because I feel like, again, that was one of the things that really held up with solving this case. And I really hated myself reading this book and being like, God damn, this killer is really smart. Like this dude is smart. Yeah, he wasn't actually, he was an exceptionally smart offender. Um, Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, in a lot of other cases, like, like serial unsolved serial cases, there's the assumption of intelligence. And then it turns Mm -hmm. out it's someone like Gary Ridgway, uh, who is, um, I don't, I don't think it's it's not PC to say borderline retarded anymore, but that's what, how he was described when he was first Mm -hmm. uh, apprehended. And this is a guy that, you know, Crime Library, RIP, I don't remember Crime Library, uh, but they did an article on, they did a series on Green River, River Killer, and the thumbnail description was like, brilliant, unidentified serial killer. You know, no, the guy was not brilliant, uh, but he was very focused. And when you're focused on one thing, and you do that one thing again and again and again, and you put all your, your uh, energy and time and attention into this one thing, you do, you do get better at that one thing, unless, you know, you are completely... Uh, have deficits across the board. Um, but in th- this case with D'Angelo, you know, he was a cop. Uh, he knew how to cover his tracks. Uh, he knew how to misdirect. Um, so yeah, that and the fact that he uh, he offended in Southern California during a period where I don't think he was living down here, um, that, that would have made it, I would say next to impossible that I ever would have identified him using um, the approach that I, that I was using. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's just, it's so frustrating because obviously you don't want these people that do these things to get away. You know, you don't want them to have the faculties to get away. And the one thing I think that shocked me the most was how patient he appeared to be again, not necessarily smart, but just patient. Well, he would, he would, you know, stand silently and motionless in one spot for hours. And you could see him doing that, uh, you know, in his court appearances. And I was trying to like think about like his mental state, because for me, what draws me to true crime is the psychology of a killer. Mm-hmm. I want to know why the person became the way that they did. I want to know if there's anything in their past, which it did seem there were a few things that would have oh, sure. led them down the street. It's yeah. trauma. I think that people that, that are serial predators, they're all traumatized um, mm-hmm. and they have unresolved trauma. Um, and they are they're trying to work tr- work through their trauma in the most destructive way that a human being can. Um, I think for for uh, D'Angelo, the big thing for him was control, control over him, himself. And I think that, you know, being being able to uh, but he could stand in one spot. He could be like, you know, the, the ninja, the unseen in the corner or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for five or six hours or for as long as he, he needed to be. And I think that that was um, that in itself was gratifying to him because it represented discipline. And a lot of a lot of offenders, you know, were born around the same time. A lot of serial murderers. I think the bulk of serial murderers 
Well, let me rephrase. I think there were more serial murderers active in America in the 1970s and early to mid 1980s than at any other time. Most of them were born in the 1940s. A lot of them served in the military. And, you know, you see similar characteristics. Um, Abusive so childhoods. Has, yeah. So it's, I think it's just a confluence of the culture at the time and the kind of parenting styles that weren't challenged. Uh, and, um, you know, obviously I think an innate, um, predisposition to psychopathy or narcissism, you know, I, I'm not convinced that all serial murderers are, are, uh, psychopathic. Um, mm -hmm. I think they have psychopathic characteristics, but, you know, look, D'Angelo, uh, had three children, um, and none of them uh, were estranged from him. I don't, I don't think one of them lived with him and they, they seem to be, uh, they seem to love and respect him as, as a parent. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that, that tells me that he was conscientious enough to be a good parent, and maybe there was some kind of um, internal uh, conflict with respect to his, um, you know, his sexual and, and psychological wiring, uh, because he did not offend after, as far as we know, after 1986. And mm -hmm. I think that as offenders, as anyone ages, I mean, look, I consider myself to, be, to have narcissistic tendencies. I was raised by a narcissistic bully. And in my 20s, I would, you know, I would say, yeah, I'm a self-loathing narcissist, you know, but in a very shallow way, I had a shallow understanding of my own narcissism. I think that as anyone ages, one, you know, ideally, not all the time, but ideally starts to develop self-awareness and, uh, you know, um, wisdom. And I think it's, uh, it's no different for, for violent offenders. And so, you know, even before he was identified, but I, I think, again, um, you know, my feeling was that uh, he, he, because up until like, I think the late 1990s, when a lot of um, long unidentified serial killers began being identified via DNA, um, you know, like Green River Killer, the speculation was that he was dead. Uh, BTK, speculation was that he was dead because it was assumed that serial, kill serial killers cannot stop killing unless they are caught or they die. Um, and, you know, look, Ridgeway, he was he was killing people up pretty much up until his arrest, but it slowed down considerably. And I think that connects to changing life circumstances, um, uh, decreased libido, um, in increased increased level of I mean, to whatever degree these people can, you know, um, grapple with morality and experience empathy. I think maybe it starts to creep in, mm -hmm. uh, but it really it, it, it differs from offender to offender. They're not all alike. Yeah. You know, I think humans are predictable. You know, when, the more you know about a person and their past, it's like animals are predictable depending upon the breed of animal. Insects are, are highly predictable. You know, you, you know, insects don't devi deviate very much in their right. behavior from insect to insect. There's not a lot of complexity or diversity. Human beings are complex, but when you zoom out, they're not that complex. So I, I think that you can use your own experiences um, to kind of understand the experiences of people you want to think are nothing like you. But in a way, I mean, we're all kind of similar in, in certain respects. And if we allow ourselves to empathize or identify with people that we feel it's taboo to identify with or empathize with, um, you know, we walk away with a greater understanding of how they operate and greater insight into people like that, which is an investigative tool. Yeah. And I really like that you said that, like, the serial killers or people who are motivated to commit these really heinous crimes are technically victims of trauma that they've yeah. gone through something that they cannot on their own get yeah. through and sadly I feel like with a lot of serial killers it's even still with the way mental health is stigmatized still today I can't imagine how much harder it would have been back then yeah I mean and I think I think again I think the the culture the spirit of the culture 
is very, very important. Um, and, you know, I, I think that someone like me, who is the, the child of, of a narcissistic abuser, um, I, you know, if I have children, I know that I will be a lot care, more careful and conscientious than my mother was because I'm living in a culture that has forced me to become self-aware. Um, and I think, you know, there are violent offenders who are the children of violent offenders. And mm -hmm. um, I, I, I suspect that uh, there's been a there's been enough progressive movement over the last 20 years, in spite of Trump and in spite of sorry, offending, you know, mm -hmm. if I'm offending any of your listeners who might be differently aligned. But um, with with Trump and, and all of the, you know, the the um, bad people who are winning and succeeding, that is demoralizing. Yeah. But there's enough resistance that I still have a, a, a germ of hope, you know, and I think it's that um, it's it's the the uh, the character of the culture that also, you know, determines um, how many people like D'Angelo are are destructively active in that culture, you mm -hmm. know, at one time. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I completely agree with so. you. No, I yeah. completely agree with you on that. I think, like you said, the culture also has a huge effect on how these serial killers are coming about and, you know, not to say like being raised, but, you know, how they're coming to be and how they operate. Yeah. You know, I highly, I or not that I say that I highly doubt, but I feel like in today's society where it's really unacceptable to like beat your child the way that a lot of these serial killers were as children and, you know, the horrible abuse that they suffered. Like, I also feel like if this were today, not to say that it wouldn't have happened, but I don't know that it could have happened on the same scale. Yeah, because again, I think, you know, I think we, we culturally uh, we, we do need to um, acknowledge child abuse to uh, a greater extent than we have, because it's taboo to talk about. It's uncomfortable to talk about. And still, I think people turn a blind eye to mm -hmm. child abuse when they see it, you know, depending depending on, you know, uh, like, you know, I think in big cities it happens more often than I don't know. Um, yeah. I'm just making a generalization based on nothing. But yeah, <laughs> um, yeah I, I, again, I, I think this culture is, um, you know, it's like uh, uh, concerns around uh, abortion and shit like that. That's just those are moral straw men that I think people on the right use to, to convince themselves and others that they have morality, that they have a moral compass when they don't, because the core of morality is power. It's mm -hmm. how you use the power that you have how you treat and affect those who have less power than you and what you do to attain more power. There's nothing more to it. Everything else is just noise. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's this excess concern uh, uh, around unborn children. But then once they're born, it's like, oh, they're just consumers exactly. to, extract, to extract value from. So, and that's a lot more interesting to me. I think, you know, ultimately trick crime was just a fascination for me and it's still, it, it kind of like ebbs, uh, you, you know, it, it um, waxes and wanes. Uh, and, um, you know, it, what really uh, um, triggers my passion and investment is, you know, the kind of like uh, systemic um, abuses of power, you know, mm -hmm. because someone like D'Angelo or Jeffrey Dahmer or, you know, whatever, you know, pick your, pick your serial offender. Um, they are ultimately anomalies. Uh, mm -hmm. They're not. They're not. Um, no one. No one in their right mind uh, is is uh, an apologist for any of these people. Uh, right. But people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and uh, Donald Trump um, and uh, Mark Zuckerberg have a great deal of power. Most of them are from some measure of privilege, and they are they are harming 
lots and lots more people than than all of the serial serial offenders combined. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the sort of thing that um, it, it's the kind of thing that um, you know, with 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 rape and murder, um, everyone's on the same page about those issues. They're mm-hmm. wrong. They're wrong. And so I don't know. I think that to approach to approach uh, uh, like a, a Joseph D'Angelo um, or a, uh, a Gary Ridgway from a different angle, the angle of what made this person this way, rather than, you know, I think most true crime is just like, uh, oh, this person's a monster and blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. And it's the same formula. Yeah, it goes without saying. It goes without saying that someone like D'Angelo is what you would characterize as a monster. Um, I don't need to be told that. Uh, mm-hmm. let, let's adopt a, a different approach to this kind of material. And in the meantime, why don't we start looking at people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg as monsters? Because those are the true monsters, I think, in this society. Um, the, the, the scope of damage and destruction, again, not like minimizing uh, uh, you know, the toxicity of someone like Joseph D'Angelo. But again, the scope of their damage is, is limited to you know, the people who, whom they victimized and the people connected to the people they victimized. Whereas, you know, billionaires are just changing the cultural landscape and making the planet uninhabitable. Exactly. So, yeah, I don't know. It, it's, uh, I, I, in the true crime space in media, I see a lot of exploitation and, and not a lot of um, people who actually have their hearts in what they're doing. And I'll, and I'll say, I'll admit, and I'll be the first to admit, and I've said this all along, that uh, what has attracted me to true crime, and it's similar for Michelle, I think it's why we connected so well uh, from the outset. Um, the appeal is that, you know, these cases are puzzles. And, you know, it's just a fascination. Who is responsible? Um, you know, and uh, uh, I'm honest about that. A lot of people working in true crime, they don't even have that level of interest. It's just a job. It's just work. These are stories to plunder for, uh, to increase one's own, you know, wealth and, and professional cachet. Uh, now I just see that again and again in true crime. Um, so it's just, it, it's an ugly space, just like in reality TV is an ugly space and yes. true crime is, is sort of perpendicular to reality TV. Now I think, you know, uh, I'll be gone dark is an excellent docuseries. I think HBO, yes. what HBO puts out, that's the highest caliber. I'm not just saying that because HBO has been good to me. HBO does put out the highest caliber of, you know, programming on, mm-hmm. on cable TV and, and it's true crime uh, content. Like I'll be gone dark murder on middle beach, um, the uh, uh, missing and murdered. Um, that, it's good stuff, and it's it's very distinct from like what you see on ID or Oxygen. And uh, you know, just compare the new Forensic Files, Forensic Files two, to the old Forensic Files, or the new Unsolved Mysteries to the old Unsolved Mysteries. And what you see in these new iterations are uh, there are differences in taste and tone. Um, there's a level of self-importance that wasn't there prior. They're bloated, and uh, it's just like you know. Uh, I don't know how to finish the sentence, but I, I think my point has already been made. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, and I completely, I completely agree with everything that you just said. I mean, the true crime world, especially with those who try to write stories, have podcasts, do things. I feel like you said there is this definite disconnect. There is this sense of ego. There is this inflated self-importance where you're losing what the actual story is and that there is this one person who was so traumatized victimized and further traumatized all of these other people who didn't deserve it and i think it's important to focus on that 
just as much as it is the details. Cause I know there are some people, even like myself, I'm sometimes like the gory details. I'm like, not that I enjoy them, but they fascinate me because again, my idea is what is the psycholo- what is the psychology of the person who can do this? But at the same time, like right. you have to remember that the corpse was a person. That was a person sure. who was loved by someone. Same thing as the person who committed the crime. They were also loved by people. And yeah. it's just a really tragic situation all around. But again, also back to another point that you made, we also should be focusing more on the people who are doing the most damage, which are the billionaires. Cause they, like you said, they've made our planet inhabitable. They've changed our climate and our culture to become something that is destructive. I feel like the, the easy monsters like D'Angelo um, mm-hmm. are really just like the magician's assistants distracting mm-hmm. you from, I mean, that not, that's just a, that's an imperfect metaphor because obviously they're not working in collusion with anyone else, right. you know, but that, that essentially that's their function. Um, and uh, yeah. I mean, like you said, we could look at monsters like D'Angelo and Kemper and, you know, BTK, you know, we could look at all of them and say, oh, they're monsters. And bottom line, but- it's entertainment. When it's on TV, it's entertainment. And, you know, it's a legitimate complaint. People don't focus on the victims. They don't tell the victim stories. Yeah, sometimes they do. But that is not what people are, are tuning in to hear. Mm-hmm. They're tuning in to hear about the offenders. Um, right. And that's just, that's just reality, you mm-hmm. know? So that's, I, that's just base, the base human impulses, I think. And, um, you know, if you're creating true crime content, it's very hard to, to find um, the right balance, and I will say that I think, you know, Liz does does accomplish that with um, mm-hmm. with all the gun in the dark. You know, mm-hmm. it does examine the victims in a way that it doesn't like fetishize them as victims. It doesn't even call them victims. It calls them survivors. You know, mm-hmm. it, it rebrands them and uh, returns them their power, the power that that had been taken away from them by D'Angelo, who had his power taken away from him. Uh, at a very young age. And I think, mm-hmm. again, it's the, that's the key to morality is power. And people that are disempowered, they're seeking, they're seeking empowerment throughout their mm-hmm. lives and often in, in unhealthy and destructive ways, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, look, this was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me. And thank all of you for listening. Your support really means a lot to me and the Ivory Tower Boiler Room team. I hope you all enjoy the rest of your week. Please stay safe out there. Do all the things. Keep yourself safe, happy, and healthy because I love you. And with that, guys, I will see you later. We hope you enjoyed this Ivory Tower Boiler Room or True Crime in Academia episode. You can watch our video versions of our episodes on patreon.com slash Room. Join at the price of an iced coffee or... Join as an Ivory Tower member and get some of our exclusive merchandise. I could not be here without an amazing team. So I'm Andrew Rimby, the executive director, and I am joined with Mary DePippi, our chief contributor, who hosts True Crime in Academia. It comes out on Tuesdays. Jaren Usta is our marketing director, and our two interns are Nicole Arguello and Kimberly Dallas. And I'm actually here with Mary. So Mary, where can they follow us on social media? You can find us on TikTok and Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room. On Twitter, we are at Ivory Boiler Room. And then just search the Ivory Tower Boiler Room on Facebook, and you can like our page there. Wonderful. And... 
We, Mary and I, and the whole team hope you all are healthy and happy. And we can't wait to join you and, you know, have you all join us in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room next week. Bye, everyone. Bye.